Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Dina. So I spent the summer of 2015 in Uganda where I worked with small-scale farmers on reducing child malnutrition. And part of the research involved asking farmers about their biggest barriers to changing their planting habits or crop yields. And over and over, I heard the exact same response, word for word. The biggest problem that these farmers were facing is that rain wasn't falling in its proper season. And the first few times I heard it, I thought, that sounds really familiar to me. And then after a few farmer interviews, I realized it's because I say that every day in the second paragraph after the Shema. The Torah literally says, if you observe God's commandments, you will be blessed with rain in its proper season. And if you don't, God will shut up the skies and withhold rain and your land will not yield produce and you will die. Which is really easy to read as a threat. Do as I say, or you die. And in Uganda, I had to learn to read this paragraph, not as a threat, but as a statement of fact. One of the first commandments that God gives human beings is to guard and protect the earth. And then many of the mitzvot that follow are about living with intentionality, building community in living with intentionality. So the Torah's lesson is actually really clear. If we don't live carefully and with intention, the earth will stop producing in predictable cycles, not because God is trying to curse us, but because that's how the earth works. Yesterday, we celebrated Tu B'Shvat, which is the annual new year of the trees, the beginning of a new natural cycle on the Jewish calendar. So I kind of feel like the day after Tu B'Shvat is for our commitment to sustainability, what the day after Yom Kippur is to our commitment to Tshuva, right? We're about as motivated as we are ever going to be on sustainability right now. So tonight, I want to say, let's harness that energy to make some commitments. Yes. It is Shabbat. It's an opportunity to relax away from the stress of the week in the material world. But as we said in Kiddush earlier, Shabbat is a zecher l'ma'aseh b'reshit, a reminder of the wondrous acts of creation, and a zecher l'itziyat mitzrayim, a reminder of what it took for us to move towards spiritual freedom. We mention these stories of creation and redemption from Egypt as we bless the coming of Shabbat because These are our foundational stories. These are the stories that are supposed to most profoundly influence how we live as Jews. Shabbat, the rabbis say, is supposed to be a taste of the world to come, sort of like a teaser of how we're going to live all the time, which they say will be like a return to the Garden of Eden. So we remember creation on Shabbat because it reminds us of what we're looking forward to. Leaving Egypt was stage one towards the ultimate redemption. And the things that we do to make Shabbat Shabbat, the delights, the ways we change our behaviors, are our zecher, our reminders of creation and redemption. Oh no, about to lose the mic. Mic down. Pause. Technological difficulties. Serves me right for trying to mess with this thing, huh? Can you help me? You're all on tenterhooks right now, figuring out what I'm going to say next, huh? It's not that interesting. (laughs) Jews are taught to make choices that 
are sometimes inconvenient to us for the sake of a greater purpose, for the sake of being part of something bigger than ourselves. We pour our spiritual and our physical energy into rituals and symbols that remind us of something bigger, that remind us that we are not just alone in the universe. So it's not that all of the ways that Halakha tells us to observe Shabbat or keep kosher or any of the other things that Halakha tells us to do, that we really decide to do, it's not that we decide to do them or it's not that we're supposed to do them because they're fun or easy or even that every single one of them is going to be spiritually transformative for us. But we hold on to these little traditions, even the ones that feel inconsequential, that feel foreign or different. We hold on to them because they remind us of being Jewish. These little practices are our zecher, our reminder of our bigger values. Continuing to tackle climate change will require each of us to establish practices that serve as our own zecher, our own reminder of our holy role in guarding the planet and all its inhabitants. Hi, dog. She's right at my elbow. So I wanted to tell you some stories about my own experience living in places where climate change is actively devastating people's lives on a daily basis. I grew up in Glencoe, right? I grew up in the North Shore of Chicago. I went to a private university for college. So I, I grew up very privileged and I had an awareness that I had this privilege, but I also had the sense that I needed to see how I fit into the bigger picture, that the things that I learned about in college or growing up, I felt like I needed to see them firsthand to really kind of wrap my head around them, to give myself more context about like, who am I in the world? What am I supposed to be doing? And so it feels obvious to say this in retrospect, but living in Nepal, which I did in 2013 and early 2014, and then Uganda in 2015, profoundly changed my understanding of my role in the world and my daily life. Right? It feels obvious to say that, A, because duh, when you go to somewhere really different, of course it's gonna change you, and B, I went for that reason, but it still kind of took me aback how, how much it changed me. I was forced to deal with theodicy in a real way. This theodicy is the struggle to understand how like a fundamentally good God could allow for suffering to exist. And after seeing the impact of climate change on people's lives in Nepal and in Uganda, it prompted me to create practices that are my zecher le Nepal, zecher le Uganda, right? Instead of being a zecher le ma'asebere sheet in the way that Shabbat is for us, I had to create sustainability practices that reminded me of these origin stories of my sense of justice and my sense of my place in the world. So I worked in Nepal for about six months when I was in my mid-20s, supporting Nepali staff of a small nonprofit who were running a youth group in a heavily populated and economically depressed area in Kathmandu. And many of the children that we worked with were born in farming villages around the country but had been sent by their parents to work in the city as domestic servants was really actually crushing that the children would wake every day at around 3 a.m. to go to the market to buy food, to cook, clean, do the laundry around the house for the family that they served. And then they would go attend very low quality schools for a couple hours and then return home and continue working domestic chores. They were essentially enslaved as children working 12 to 15 hour days in exchange for meager room and board. Why? 
because of climate change. That simple. These children's families were usually farmers who were no longer able to produce enough food on their farms to feed their families or pay their school fees. Rainfall had decreased in Nepal because of climate change, and it had become much more unpredictable and the soil was so dry and so depleted from trying to squeeze as much out of it as they could that it simply couldn't support crops anymore. So families had to make a horrible choice. Sometimes they would choose that one of the parents, often the father, sometimes both parents would go abroad to work, often in Qatar, Malaysia, and very, very dangerous construction jobs. Other families, for various reasons, couldn't make this decision, and so they had to send their children off to the city, essentially selling them into slavery. And I was in Kathmandu, and it was clear to me that Kathmandu was not really a much better place to live than the villages these children were coming from. Sure, there was much more food available, sort of, but the air and water pollution in Nepal is some of the in Kathmandu in particular, is some of the worst in the world. In the Environmental Protection Index, Nepal's air quality ranks 180th. Out of 180, it's literally the bottom for air quality in the entire world. When I lived there, you could scratch your arm and then see black marks on your skin where you had scraped off a layer of grime. It was that bad. And working with these children, I got to feel how profoundly climate change had devastated their lives in their villages and then was devastating their lives by living in Kathmandu and breathing that air all the time. And I, as a person of faith, found it impossible to pray. The language of our prayers, even the most basic blessings, if I was trying to have some sort of Jewish gratitude practice, praises a divine being who is the sovereign of the universe, who made each human in the divine image. Well, if that's true, I reasoned, then God must be racist. Because all parts of the world do not feel equally blessed and protected by divine love. There are places where suffering is more prevalent, and those tend to be places where the people are primarily black or brown. Therefore, I thought, all right, if you're telling me God is the sovereign of the universe, then this is just a racist sovereign. I was bumping up against a classic theological paradox. Um, Rabbi Brad Artson writes it out in a really beautiful way. So I want to read you a little quote from him. He writes that there are three dogmas that we're told we're supposed to believe about God. That God is all-powerful, omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient, and all-good, omnibenevolent. And these three omnis have created more atheists than any cluster of ideas in human history because God can be any two but not all three at the same time. End quote. We see a similar theological dilemma in this week's Parsha. So here's the situation. The Egyptian army is chasing down the Israelites. So God splits the sea because they're backed up against the sea. God splits the sea so that they can cross safely to the other side and escape the pursuing army. The Egyptians are in hot pursuit, follow the Israelites into the sea. The Israelites make it onto safety in dry land and the entire Egyptian army drowns when the sea closes back up. Okay, so for a God who's just wreaked havoc on an entire nation because of the stubbornness of one leader, or to make a point about that God's power, I guess we shouldn't be that surprised that God drowns so many Egyptians. So maybe the Torah's sort of shot, straightforward response to the theological paradox, omniscience, omnipotence, omnibenevolence, 
is to let go of omnibenevolence, to say, yeah, I mean, I guess God's okay with some people dying. The rabbis of the Midrash, it seems, were not really willing to choose option three. So in their telling of the story, as the sea crashes over the Egyptians, the angels want to start singing for joy, as angels do. And God chides them and says, my, cre- my creations are drowning. How can you cheer? Right? God is feeling some pain over the death of the Egyptians in this moment, which is a little confusing to me because I'm not really sure which of the other two positions the rabbis of the Midrash are trying to give up here. Are they giving up on God's omniscience? Are they saying God didn't realize the Egyptians were going to drown? Or are they giving up on God's omnipotence and saying God knew what was going to happen and just didn't have the power to control them or the sea to save them? But in either case, the Midrash is suggesting a theological position that allows us to confront suffering and make sense of it. So maybe intellectually I had bumped into this conundrum before Nepal, but it was in Kathmandu that this ideology of I have to let go of one of these three things, I have to come up with a view of the way the world works, right? It doesn't have to be God language. I had to come up with some kind of way to make sense of suffering that says either there's no thing that knows about this suffering, like this is an unknown suffering, or this is an unmovable suffering, or God just doesn't care. For me, it intuitively made the most sense to let go of a belief in God's goodness. That was just sort of my instinct. I found a theology, I needed to have a theology of some sort. I had a deep sense that there is some sort of divine creator. And I found a theology that's not rooted in a God who is all-powerful or a God who is all-knowing to just be personally uncompelling, even if that meant that I had to deal with a God who could have intervened to save lives and didn't. You can make a different decision than me, and you can reject belief in a divine or godly force altogether. But at some point, we each have to find a way to accommodate emotionally and spiritually the presence of suffering in the world. In my belief system, God is not going to intervene to ensure well-being and blessing for all people. So it is up to me to do as much good as I can. But a different conclusion about this theological paradox could lead you to the same actions, right? Perhaps intuitively you sense that God doesn't know about all of the suffering in the world, so it's your role to find it and to address it. Or perhaps you feel inclined to believe that God doesn't have the power to change it, that it's not God's role to change it, so you have to pitch in and help. Or you don't believe that there's a God involved at all, and so you dedicate yourself to justice because we have to. We're all each other has. You can pick any of those options. The outcome is the same. We have to do whatever we can to protect and love and bring blessing to other people. As the sages said in Pirkei Avot, it's not up to you to finish the work of healing the world, but you are not allowed to give up. You have to be engaged in it. And the saying is so wise because it acknowledges how tempting it is to give up on big fights. I left Nepal knowing that I was going to be going back to a very comfortable world where I could easily forget what I had seen and how it had made me feel, and I would give up on the fight. So I knew that if I wanted to make a difference for the children that I had worked at, worked with, for all of the people whose lives are being devastated by the impacts of climate change, I needed to change my own actions and I needed to make myself some symbolic reminders of my life in Nepal. 
In other words, I had to make my own personal sustainability meets vote. That would be my Zecher Nepal, my reminder of the values that I developed in Nepal. And like traditional meets vote, what I developed are regular, slightly inconvenient practices that are as ever evolving as my relationship to the practice and bigger picture that I'm working on. So it's things like committing to buying only organic milk and then eventually phasing out buying dairy milk altogether. And then investigating which types of non-dairy milk were actually the most sustainable and committing to buying from brands that practice regenerative agriculture. So now I drink macadamia nut milk. Do I like macadamia nut milk as much as I like dairy milk? Not really. It's more expensive, it's less, less nutritious, and it's less delicious, in my opinion. You could think differently. But every time I drink it, I remember how lucky I am to be able to make a choice that contributes to a healthier planet and reminds me of the consequences of climate change. So I drink my tea with macadamia nut milk now. Yes, I drink my tea with milk. And I'm reminded of Nepal. And I'm reminded of the privilege that I have to choose food for myself. Last night, Mishkanites Barb Dornbush and Andy Stein and Hans Detweiler gave an amazing presentation on sustainable choices that we can each make in our own home. Things like choosing LED light bulbs, buying organic cotton, switching to electric vehicles, so much more. And we only scratched the surface last night. So I imagine many of you are in the same boat that I'm in right now, which is that we're already committed to some of these changes. We're exploring others and after hearing Barb and Hans and Andy, I am feeling inspired to make some decisions I hadn't really considered. And every time that I make a choice with sustainability in mind, I'm just gonna hold this here, I am reminded of my commitment to fill in the gaps that I see in God's work. I'm reminded of how I want to fulfill the commandment to be a guardian of the earth. That's a lot of spiritual work for a little carton of alt milk to do or even a new stove. But that's the Jewish way to turn our everyday things into symbols of our holy purpose. And on Shabbat, when I say Kiddush and I remember the connection between my daily actions to be a good steward of God's creations and the way that those are supposed to remind me of redemption, I can spend my Shabbat relishing this little taste of the world to come. I hope you can too. Shabbat Shalom. <coughs> Also in the background, the dog is playing with a very squeaky toy. <laughs> You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune in to Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month, and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org slash events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our director of communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, 
Thanks for tuning in. 